it says 1 Peter 4.10, and but that's it's related to 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Peter 4 because we we're in the main in 1 Corinthians. Probably everybody here has heard some version of the ancient story of blind men inspecting an elephant, right? Everybody has seen that somewhere. One blind man puts his hand on the elephant's leg and he says, and he says, an elephant is like a pillar. And another one holds the tail and says, no, it's more like a rope. It's not like a, no, no, it's a rope. Another one has the trunk. He says, well, it's too big for a rope. It's, more, it's really more like the branch of a tree. Another one has the ear. He says, no, it's like, a, it's like a large fan. An elephant is like a large fan. And the, there's one on the side. And he says, no, an elephant is like a wall, right? Another one has the tusk. And he says, no, it's, an elephant is like a, it's, it's like a solid length of, of pipe. And there, there's no agreement whatsoever. None of them agree on what an elephant is or what it's like. And, and there's, in, in a way, they're all right. And in a way, they're all wrong. Because their point of contact with the subject matter is just too narrow. It's too limited. And that's the situation, it seems to me, with this centuries-long debate among Christians concerning spiritual gifts or at least certain spiritual gifts. Some, I said, we touched on this a few weeks ago. I said, I'm not talking about that now. I just barely, barely dipped into the subject. But this is, this is it. This is that sermon. Some contend that certain spiritual gifts described in the New Testament have, have ceased. And the position is called cessationism. If you hear it, that's what it means. Certain gifts have ceased. And the focus is always on either revelatory gifts, you know, God's, gifts involving God's self-revelation, you know, direct revelation uh, from God, uh, some uh, gift of prophecy or, or uh, divinely given knowledge or, or something like that. Or, and then also what you might call evidentiary gifts. And like, I, that's my word. That's not, that's not a common word, but... But that would be, you know, confirm gifts that confirm God's presence, that that confirm His message, and maybe like a healing gifts of healing, gift of miracles. You know, these are named gifts in the in the list of spiritual gifts, spiritual enablements, working of miracles, tongues, and the argument for the cessation of these gifts uh, is off. And and people don't quite always agree on which ones, but the the cessation would certainly say that some of these gifts have, have ceased. They've just ceased. And the argument uh, for that is, is very often connected with the development of the Bible. The idea being that these revelatory gifts or evidentiary gifts were, were useful and they were necessary in the absence of a developed Bible. There was, you know, in the, new, in the time when the New Testament was, you know, some of it hadn't been written yet and certainly not all the churches would have access to all of these letters they didn't have bibles like you and i have and during the argument would be during that time uh that, that these gifts were necessary and useful to the lord and the church you know the, where did they get revelation well it came through came through these gifts and the idea is that once the once the new testament was completed once there was broad access to it that they that the holy spirit who gives the gifts just simply stopped giving them. Ephesians 2.20 says the church was 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the argument would be made that once the foundation is laid, the concrete you send the concrete men and the block men home. It's time for the carpenters to come in and the electricians and the plumbers and the drywall people and the roofers. You know, it's a, it's, it's, you don't continue to lay the foundation once it's laid. And that would be the argument. The work of the apostles and prophets is done. So the contemporary claims, and of course a lot more could be said, but this is basically the position that the contemporary claims, on the basis cessationists would say, Contemporary claims that some of these, uh, that, that some people have, that these, no, no, these gifts are operable, they're, they're ongoing, they're being experienced. They're just, they would just say, well, it's just, it's just wrong. It's wrong. No, it isn't. Uh, that cessationists are not of one mind about what is going on exactly wherever these revelatory and evidentiary gifts are, are said to be active and working. But they know, or they think they know, whatever's going on, it is not the genuine, it's not genuine gifts of the Holy Spirit, like we see at Corinth. That's the basic position. On the other hand, others contend that the Holy Spirit has not uh, ceased to give any of the spiritual gifts as described and seen in the New Testament, these wouldn't be cessationist, and if something has ceased, they'd be often continuationist. This position is continuation. No, they've continued. They've continued. The, gift ha the gifts haven't ceased. They've continued. And the arguments would be that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Romans 11.29 says just that. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And they argue, the continuationists would argue, that, that if there have been times and if there have been places and if there have been groups that have, that have just, where, there, where these gifts have ceased and they're not to be found, the fault lies not with the Holy Spirit who wants to give gifts, but with the lukewarm faith of the church who's not open to them. The situation is akin to the one Jesus faced, they might say, at his hometown of Nazareth, where Matthew 13, 58 says, and he did not do many mighty works. Your translation might say miracles. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. The parallel passage in Mark goes too far as to say this. This is how Mark puts it. This is Mark 6, 5. And he could... He could do no mighty work there. It's a little stronger, isn't it? He could do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And the context makes it clear, why could he not? The context is clear, that it's due to the general lack of faith, this general unbelief that prevailed there in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. So, for this continuationist, the real mark of a genuine and fervent faith in a Christian and a, a genuine and fervent faith in a church, according to the continuation, will be and even must be 
the full experience of all the gifts of the Holy Spirit as described in the New Testament. So you're going to see wherever, the fer- wherever faith is fervent, real, op- really open to the Holy Spirit, you're going to see prophecy, there's going to be some words of knowledge, uh, the, the healings, you know, speaking in tongues, all of it. Likely see all of it, any of it. Traditional Pentecostal theology goes so far as to hold that speaking in tongues is the necessary evidence of having been baptized in or by the Holy Spirit. Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 12.30, all do not speak in tongues, do they? And really, traditional Pentecostalism says they sure do. If they've been baptized in and by the Holy Spirit, they do. All of them. And the situation is, is really downright toxic to Christian unity, to Christian fellowship, because the cessationist says, the, the cessationist says to the continuationist, you know, basically you're deluded. You're deceived and self-deceived. You are pursuing... You know, emotional sensations. You're not, you know, you're not pursuing Christ. You're not pursuing truth. And your longing has made you naive and manipulable. You know, it's no wonder you, you fall for such fakes and frauds with the sparkly suits and the helmet hair and all that, you know, all that stuff. It's no wonder that you fall for that. And the continuationist says, oh, yeah. Well, your faith isn't even lukewarm. You're God's frozen chosen. You know, nobody, nobody would go to one of your dull, boring worship services and say like they did at Corinth, God is truly here among you. God doesn't even show up at your worship services. And some of the sensationists, Go nuclear because it's getting personal. And they go so far as to say, yeah, you've got a lot of spiritual activity going on, all right. But it's the wrong kind. It's of the devil. And you teach the doctrines of demons. And so... Some of the continuations go nuclear too. And they say, rightly did the Apostle Paul prophesy of you, they have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. Avoid such people. And that which was given, and you, you know, we've been studying First Corinthians, you know why, to get, that, that which is given for the edification, for the building up of the church, that is spiritual gifts, in the hands of fallen and sinful people becomes something that divides the church, fragments the church, and really even destroys the unity of the church. How Corinthian, right? (laughs) How Corinthian is that? 
I mean, the whole situation is just so Corinthian. I, I, I contend that at least part of the reason why this is so is that neither the cessationist nor the continuationist is seeing the whole elephant in its totality. The elephant being the manifold grace of God, which is why I'm jumping from 1 Corinthians over to 1 Peter. What do we mean by the manifold grace of God? And, and what is its connection to this fellowship-killing issue of spiritual gifts, at least the way we've handled it. If you are in Christ, and even if you are not in Christ, you have experienced something of the grace of God. Every single person, the Bible says, every single person has experienced the grace of God. Does that mean everybody is a Christian, everybody is saved? No. But there is this general grace of God. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. God shows His goodness his grace to everybody. The goodness of life, the food that we eat, the drink that we drink, it's, it, there's God's grace in all of that. But anyone's pers any one person's experience of the grace of God does not capture the whole of the grace of God. It's, God's grace is super abundant, the New Testament says. It's super abundant. It overflows. It's infinite in its capabilities. Uh, it's, it's infinite in, in its possible manifestations. It's new every morning, new every morning. And it's this same grace, it's this grace of God that flows through spiritual gifts when, they are, when spiritual gifts are given and when spiritual gifts are used. It's God's grace that flows through it. And here's the verse. 1 Peter 4.10 As each has received a gift, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That's English Standard Version. It's a, the varied, that word, that word translated varied in, in the uh, King James New American Standard says manifold. Manifold. The amplified version it says multifaceted, which which offer to me offer a little bit a, a little bit a stronger description than just varied. You know, you know, to me, a McDonald's drive-through menu is varied. You know, it's varied. The items available to you on Amazon.com are manifold. <laughs> you know, you could say you could say that Amazon.com has varied gifts, varied var gifts various uh, items that you can get but I, that's the difference I, that's the difference I see they both work it's not like varied is inaccurate or something but this but I think the idea is stronger in this the manifold grace of God the the multifaceted grace of God Romans 3:24 says God's grace it's God's grace that justifies us we're justified by his grace we're declared not guilty in the court of heaven it's grace is that all a grace? Is that all it does? No. Hebrews 13.9 says it's God's grace that allows our hearts to rest and be at peace with a holy God. How can, we, how can people like us boldly come before the throne of grace? 
It's grace. Grace. Acts 20.32 says it's God's grace that builds us up in our faith. Post-justification. How do we get built up in our faith? How do we, how are we sanctified? It's grace. God's unmerited favor on the undeserving. Colossians 1.6 says it's God's grace that brings people to believe in the gospel. How did you come to believe? Grace. 1 Corinthians 15 says it says it's God's grace that enables people to grow spiritually and work hard for the cause of Christ in difficult circumstances. That's not the quote, but that's what it says. It's grace. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says it's God's grace that sustains us when the answer to our prayers is no. Paul prayed three times. My grace is sufficient for you came the answer. What sustains us in these when, when God says no? It's grace. 2 Peter 3.18, the first part of the verse, commands us all, everyone, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we have that command to grow. Let me ask you, are you done? If you've been doing that, are you done? Are you finished? Have you completed that check? You know, have you checked that one up? Yeah, I did that one. I did that one. Could the most spiritually mature, most closest to God Christian in this church or in any church, could, could that person say they have finished growing in the grace of God? That they've completed that a command? No. God's grace is, is manifold. It is multifaceted. It, it has more facets, more discoveries to be made, more things to experience than, than any person could experience in a lifetime, and I suspect even in eternity. I suspect even in eternity. Which would be a great cause for worship, won't it? If the grace of God that flows through, 1 Peter 4.10, this, this is what it is. We exercise, we, we exercise the gifts as stewards of the grace of God. Steward, God, there's grace that flows through the gifts. We're responsible to use them with our gifts. And God's grace comes through it. If the grace of God that flows through spiritual gifts, spiritual enablements, is so multifaceted, should it surprise us if the different ways that God enables His people to work as conduits of His grace is similarly manifold, multifaceted, innumerable. There are four listings of spiritual gifts in the New Testament. Two of them are in the chapter we jumped from to get to 1 Peter 4, 1 Corinthians 12. In first, I'll just list them for you. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 lists utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge. Some say word of knowledge, you know, word of wisdom. Faith is listed as a spiritual gift, which would be obviously something different, something more than 
just the believing faith, just faith we have in the Lord. It's a spiritual gift that not everybody would have. But faith is listed as a, as a gift. No definition. It just, it just says a gift of faith. Gifts of healing. The working of miracles. Prophecy. The ability to distinguish between spirits. Various kinds of tongues. And interpretation of tongues. First Corinthians, at the end of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 30, list these. And sometimes they're listed as gifted people. Sometimes the gifts themselves, this is the people. The gifts, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. There's another list in Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. It lists prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contributing or giving, leading, and acts of mercy. Ephesians 4.11 lists apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, pastors, and teachers. None of the lists are the same. And all of the lists leave something out, or some things. Thirteen of those names appear in only one list. Same author, the Apostle Paul. Was he having trouble agreeing with himself? Could he not remember all of them all at one time? Or was it not his interest to name all of the ways that God can manifest his manifold grace through the, I'm arguing, manifold conduits or enablements he gives to people as he wills, when he wills, where he wills. Why would we imagine that adding up the four biblical I'm arguing sample uh, lists of gifts. You know, we have, all of these lists are partial, right? They're all partial. Why would we imagine that adding up the four biblical lists would give us an exhaustive list of every possible spiritual gift that God could give? Why would we think that? First Corinthians 12, 14 through 21, in this very context, talking about this very thing, the Apostle Paul draws an analogy between the body of Christ and the way God has gifted individuals in the body of Christ and a human body and the parts of a human body that make the whole thing go. And he says, I'll just read a few verses. And if you, if you want to look at your Bible, it's 1 Corinthians 12, starting with the verse 14. But he says, For the body does not consist of one member, but many. If the foot should say, Because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. Of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, what would, make it, would that make it any less a part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would, this, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? 
But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And it, and it goes on in this vein for a few more verses. Could we say, would we say, why would we say, <laughs> on the basis of that passage, that according to the Bible, according to Paul, the human body consists of two feet, one hand, one ear, one eye, a head, and an implied nose. He implies the nose. He says, where would be the sense of smell? But the others, they're the only ones named. They're the only ones named. Of course, it's, it's ridiculous, you know, that Paul says the human body is, you know, the feet and the one hand and all, all that. That'd be a cartoon, wouldn't it? But it's not Paul's, it wasn't Paul's point to describe every single part of a body. It wasn't even his point to describe every necessary part. There's the hands, the feet, the ears, the head, the eyes. They're, they're sample parts. And of course there are others. He says so. There are many. There are many. He named a few, but he said there's many. More than 19. <laughs> Paul, Paul knew it. I say 19 because that's one of the numbers that people come up with of how many gifts there are. You could go a few. There's a little overlap. Are they the same? They call different things. There's a question about some. It was a gift. You know, 18, 19, 20, something like that. Paul knew there were more parts of the body than what he named. And you, you know it even better. He probably didn't know about, what, thyroids. He probably didn't know, about, he probably didn't know a lot about a lot of stuff. He didn't know about a pancreas. I, I, I still have a, a textbook from uh, my Bible college days called uh, 19 Gifts of the Spirit. So I said 19. It's called 19 Gifts of the Spirit. And it's really good. I'm glad it's not, the title of the book is not The 19 Gifts of the Spirit. But the subtitle pushes us back in that direction because the subtitle says, Which do you have? Which do you have? And are you using it? There's a, still this idea in there that since every Christian is gifted in some way, and that's clear, that's clear as each one has been given a gift or gifts, there's still the idea that your gift, whatever it is, has got to be in the list. So which is it? I, I, you know, I almost feel sorry for that overworked gift of service or helps. You know, sometimes it's help, sometimes it's service. and It's over. That seems to be the, you know, that's, the gift of helps, the gift of service seems to be the trough that catches all the gutter balls, you know. The, you know, you, you don't have the nerve to say you have one of these others that seems so proud, I don't know. If it, you want to be humble and say, I don't know if I have this gift or that gift, and you, you're just too modest or you don't. It, it just kind of, it, it all rolls downhill, and the, the gift of helps, the gift of service catches them all, you know. Every, anybody can, almost every, anybody can stack chairs, you know. Almost anybody can... Can uh, you know fold up tables and put them away, help in the kitchen, something like that. 
But if you confine yourself to the 19 named gifts, if that's how many there are, 18, 20, if you confine yourself to that's the possible universe of spiritual gifts, uh, you're that blind guy <laughs> trying to define an elephant. And that elephant, remember, is the manifold, multifaceted, superabounding, infinite grace of God. G. Campbell Morgan was a British evangelist, uh, preacher, Bible scholar. Uh, he pastored at, well, he died in 1945, to give you an idea. He he pastored Westminster Chapel in London before Martin Lloyd-Jones did. And, and you may have heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've talked about it before. You can, even, you can hear Martin Lloyd-Jones preach. You can, he, he's a little generation later. You know, he's, he's been dead and gone a long time, but you can hear audio of him, quite a, a lot of sermons on the Internet, and he's, he's certainly a favorite of mine. But G. Campbell Morgan, he actually served with Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel, G. Campbell Morgan mentored him uh, and before he kind of handed off the pastorate uh, to Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's, he, he's the one that preached uh, 14 years on the book of Romans. Didn't, and the church grew. <laughs> Most people had kill a church preaching 14 years on the book of Romans. You know, he, that's Martin Lloyd-Jones. But G. Campbell Morgan was his mentor and the person that had the pastorate where he where he preached before it. And, but in 1906, in, in a forward to a book of poems, there's this book of poems. I don't know the book. I don't know the author. It's, I don't know. I'm not familiar with it. The, bo the book is called A Believer's Thoughts. Uh, the author is Edith Hickman Duvall. Uh, and, and he wrote a, a forward to this book. Is a, a Christian who wrote the, these poems, book of poems. Here's what he says in part in this forward. In the scriptures of the New Covenant, we find different lists of the gifts bestowed upon His church by the risen and glorified Lord. It has often been pointed out that no two of these lists are exactly alike. He says there is a deep suggestiveness and great beauty in this fact. We are all strangely prone to mechanism and are too fond of tabulating and stating systematically even the things of God. There would have been some sort of satisfaction in having an exhaustive list of his gifts. Yet how sad it would have been, for inevitably we would have spent much time in seeking to place each other by our gifts or pitying such as seemed to possess none. The gifts were never tabulated exhaustively, because they cannot be exhausted. And while today some of the earliest are not found, he writes, many new and precious ones are ours. So here's what he's saying in this forward to this book of poetry. Could a God gift a believing poet in such a way that the grace of God flowed through her work? to the hearts of others. 
Could that happen? G. Campbell Morgan thought so. He said, yes. I don't see a gift of poetry <laughs> in the lists, but she's got it. Well, you know, how about a, the, the poets of our day or the songwriters, maybe, who seem to have some sort of knack for communicating the grace of God in a compelling and moving and motivating and faith-building way that not everybody has that. Not everybody has. Precious few do. Even among all the ones that write songs. <laughs> what about scholars? Do you feel, if you've been in the, especially toward the more academic side of things, do you think you've known gifted scholars? Gifted. That it doesn't translate well to preaching, maybe, or teaching in a traditional kind of way. You think you've seen? Have you ever seen people gifted, like maybe gifted with uh, children? They're just gift. They just they can do something. You know, the grace of God comes through what they do in a way that not everybody has that. Hospitality, well, hospitality might be named as a gift. There's a question. Some people say it's, a, it's not really one of the lists. But I'll bet you've seen it. We're all supposed to be hospitable to one another. We're all supposed, and others. Some people. Some people make you, you, you're, you feel at home. Some people have a gift. <laughs> that communicates something of, of God's hospitality toward us. Should we feel compelled to like, you know, the, all of these things, should we force their gift into the one called teaching? You see people gifted at worship, and, you know, different, all these things. Should we, should we com be, feel compelled to Squeeze that gift maybe into the gift of exhortation, even if it doesn't seem to quite, quite fit. Or, or should we feel compelled to say that what someone does best for God, what someone does best with God, is not a genuine spiritual gift, because it's not in the lists, and leave them to study and pray over the biblical lists until they die without ever being certain of whether or how God has given them a spiritual gift in the way that the New Testament says every Christian is. And that's where some of us are. Have been believers for decades and having no certain sense of what our enablement is and it nags at us and they try not to think about it much in that forward I read Morgan wrote today some of the earliest we meant gifts are not found and I'm sure I'm sure a lot of you caught that it sort of lets you know where he was on the cessationist continuationist thing he, he puts him on the cessationist side the idea that certain gifts have ceased 
He is rather careful in his language, though, because he says they're not found. He doesn't quite say they're out of bounds or they're not, God's not doing those things anymore. You know, you know politicians and theologians, you've got to parse them very carefully. They're careful with their words. But I want to say, in the last few minutes, I want to say something different to you today. And you may, you may have never thought of it. I haven't thought of it for very long. If the New Testament gifts are not exhaustive and the gifts of God are as manifold as the grace of God that it flows through the gifts, then the whole cessationist, continuationist controversy becomes largely moot. If you, if you will... If you say the gifts of God are manifold as His grace, the Spirit can distribute the gifts as He wills, and what He has done in the past has no necessary connection to what He may choose to do now or in the future. And I'll say this too. And the exact nature and even the strength of his enablements given in the past have no necessary relationship to how he might enable someone today or in the future. The only thing that has to be the same is that anyone's giftedness, mine, yours, anyone's, is a stewardship of God's grace. And when you exercise that gift, the grace of God will flow through it and the church will be built up and edified, and Christians will be built up and edified. The same thing, it's not built up and. It built up, being built up is being edified. Let's take the gift of prophecy as, a, as an example. It's the, only, it's the only gift that's in all the lists. The prophetic role is always to receive a message from God and relay it to the people for which it's intended. A good many preachers, a, good, a lot of preachers today, will hold that the gift of that preaching is the typical and some would say exclusive way that the prophetic role is manifest today. Because preaching certainly is taking a message from God and relaying it to the people to which it's intended. But let's face it. Let's face it. What the preacher does is not quite the same as when Moses carried down the Ten Commandments, the greatest of the prophets, when Moses carried the Ten Commandments down to the people. My sermon notes were not written with the, by the finger of God. And what the preacher does is not quite the same as when an Isaiah or a Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord. God told me to tell you this. You've never heard it before. I've told this church before that if I ever stand up here and tell you that God told me to tell you fill in the blank, I've made this promise. If I ever stand up here and tell you that, you can believe that I believe that's exactly what happened. You might think that's the medication talking. <laughs> but I promise you, and it might be, 
But I promise you that I will believe that's what happened. I will not exaggerate for effect. I will not exaggerate to strengthen the point. There's too much exaggeration that goes on in the church in that vein. There's too much overstatement. There's too much trying to make our experience match up with some of the revelatory language in the New Testament. In preaching, it this is the thus saith the Lord. This is the thus saith the Lord. And if what I say or anyone else, or the preacher says to unpack it, draw it out its meaning, draw it out its valid applications, then it has a derived authority from the text. But the authority isn't in my words. It's in these words. What the preacher does, if, it's a, if you could say the preacher is a prophetic, that's a manifestation of a gift of prophecy, it's not quite the same as when Paul, the apostle Paul, told the believers at Corinth, he said, some of the physical, we did this a couple weeks ago, some of the physical sickness that you have in this church, and even people who have died in this church, is because God is disciplining this body because of your abuses and your perversions of the, of the worship and the Lord's Supper specifically. Which sounds like a prophetic message to me. How would he know that? Certainly he wasn't guessing at it. Certainly he wasn't just going for effect. He knew that. Because God had revealed it to him. So, there, so there's a range of prophetic manifestations, varying qualities, various people at various times. I, I, was, I was reading in my just personal devotions this week, and I happened upon the place that just that in Numbers 12 where Miriam and Aaron were presupposed to oppose Moses. And God confronted them. This is part of what God said. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. A few little words later. With him I speak mouth to mouth. That's, that's, that's English standard. Your version might say face to face. With him I speak face to face. Clearly. Not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? This is why Moses regarded as Israel's greatest prophet. Because God revealed himself, and it wasn't in dreams, wasn't in visions. It was a face-to-face -face -to -face thing. That wasn't Daniel's experience. It wasn't Isaiah's. In the New Testament, however, what are we supposed to do with someone who reports having received a revelation from God? What are we supposed to do with that? Well, 1 Thessalonians 4 says, Do not quench the Spirit... Do not despise prophecies, but test everything and hold on to what is good. Don't, don't do that with Moses. That, that's, what Miriam, that's what Miriam and Aaron were doing. They, they thought, well, some of what Moses says, I don't know. We don't. I don't even do that with Isaiah or Jeremiah or Daniel who said, thus says the Lord. Don't, hold, don't, don't, don't test it and hold on to what is good and let the rest go. It, believe me, it's all, you might not understand it all, but it's all good. Hold on to all of it. But 
when the pastor says, God is leading this church to build a million dollar sanctuary. Test it. Don't despise prophecies. But test everything and hold on to what is good. When the, when the teenager... Well, I, I don't want to use that word. <laughs> when the young adult... How about that? Says, I think God is telling me to go on the summer mission trip to Europe and not, not work a job to earn the money for the next semester. Don't quench the spirit, but test everything and hold on to what is good. Don't quench the spirit. Don't say, don't say that, that could never happen because God is not doing that kind of stuff anymore. He didn't tell you anything. But test everything. Hold on to what is good. And which, hold on to what is good. What do you do with the rest? You let it go. You let it go. Something well-intended, sincere, but probably not the revelation from God someone may thinks it is. It's okay. You know, there was a period of about 400 years between the Testaments when there was absolutely no prophetic activity in Israel. Prophecy ceased in Israel. But if you were 399 years into that time and said, and your position was, God's not doing it anymore, he can't do it anymore. He's not doing it anymore. You'd be ill-prepared to hear John the baptizer with ears to hear, wouldn't you? So you'd say, no, 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 that stuff's over. He's a fraud, he's a fake. That stuff's over. Don't let your... Don't let your theology back you into a corner where you are basically telling God, thou shalt not. That's not, for, that's not for us to tell God, thou shalt not. That's for him to tell us. And, and similarly, you, you, know, you don't let your theology back you into a place where you're telling God what he must do because he's done it in the past. And end up putting words in the Lord's mouth when he is not spoken. Both of those are not, are, don't, don't sound like the fear of the Lord. He does according to his will when he wants to do them. There's a, I'll end with this. I'm over. I'm sorry. But there's one variation of that blind man and blind men and elephant story that puts a different spin on it. This is, uh, this, in this version, there's six blind elephants uh, inspecting a man. And the first one felt the man with his, with his front feet, felt it carefully, and said, a man is a flat thing. And the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth, they all felt of it. And they said, yes, they, we all agree, a man is a very flat thing. Don't flatten the manifold grace of God. Uh even if the Christians you hang out with all agree on its flatness. Don't flatten it into, the, into 19 gifts that must be present at all times and all places. And don't 
flatten it even further by saying, no, it's 19, it's more like 12 or 10. Something like that. Because the manifold grace of God is never, it's not flat. It's just, if it's flat in your group, it's only because the group think. It's not flat. It's not flat at all. God enables his people to serve him according to his will, and it doesn't matter to him whether he's been doing it that way lately or not. What he's done in the past does not require him to do the same things now. He may even do a new thing that you've never seen or experienced before any time he chooses because God's gifts are manifold. So here's what you do. You love him. You love his people. You love others. You serve him. You serve his people. You serve others. And over time, you will notice that you can do something, that there are certain situations in which God's grace flows through you, through what you do or through what you say, in a way that not everybody can do. And people will thank God that you were there, that you did what you did, that you said what you said, that you prayed how you prayed, that you believed how you believed, and, you, and they will sense that there was, it wasn't just you. There was something of God in it. There was something of God's grace in it. And you were its steward. That's your gift. Whether you can put a name to it or not. Whether it's in the list or not. It's what you do best for God. It's what you do best with God. And that is your stewardship of God's manifold grace. I thank you for your patience. Lord, use each of us and all of us to accomplish your will in our time and in our place, in our lives. Give us eyes to see something more of your manifold grace, your multifaceted grace. May we stop with telling you what you must do or what you will no longer do, but simply walk in obedience to you, loving the saints, serving the cause of Christ everywhere. Give us gifts and greater gifts still that your grace might flow through us more abundantly than it has for your glory for the blessing of your church increase faith in every believing person here today and let it spring up in any heart that is open to your grace that they might be saved we pray in the name of jesus amen